We've all taken part in scavenger hunts. They're fun. You get your step count in, and when we were young, it was the best way for our parents to get us out of the house so they could cry freedom and enjoy the silence caused by our absence. Now picture that in 1980 without a smartphone. Not so fun now, is it? You know who it is fun for? Us. So sit back as we prove to you that Midnight Madness is not that bad. Welcome, welcome one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And we are stepping back in time. How far back? 43 years back in time. I'm just feeling the the backaches kicking in there just thinking about that because we are talking about the movie Midnight Madness and little little inside baseball here for you. We have been preparing for this movie for a while when it was first mentioned by our good friend from my weekly mixtape and from Playlist Wars, Brian Colburn. Back on the show. How you doing, man? Please, please hold your applause, as Leon said when he was first introduced in the movie. Thank you so much for having me, man. I am so excited that we're finally going to go down this rabbit hole because this movie is certainly a rabbit hole and it is certainly a divisive film. The funny thing is, like, when you first mentioned this, I'm like, okay, it it looks like fun. It feels like something that I might have maybe seen at some point on, like, you know, TV, maybe. Because it's not really, there's nothing really wrong with the film, even though it is a PG film. Uh, Although PG from Disney, we'll get to that a little bit later here. But for you, what is it about this film that made you want to pitch this to for the show? It's one of those movies that a lot of my friends and I grew up with. It was one of those movies that was played on HBO a ton growing up during the day. And it's, I wouldn't wouldn't call it necessarily a kid's movie because it was aimed at the college audience, but it was done in a PG fashion. And it was just one of those movies that a lot of people my age know by heart and quote incessantly. And because of that fact, it's almost become a cult classic for a lot of my friends and I, where we will randomly just text each other words like Fagabifi or Cherry Point or SS Itari or Hug Me. Just different lines from the movie, randomly, and it's just hysterical. We just love it. So for me, this was a no-brainer. As soon as you started this program, and Gomez and I came on for Caddyshack 2, I had to look up and say, I wonder what Midnight Madness was rated. Because, you know, I was only three at the time. So I did, so I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm like, ooh, this really works for this show. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, like, you're right in that it's a bit of a cult classic. And those who like it really do like it. The fact that this film has actually been referenced and, you know, kind of homaged on shows like Robot Chicken just goes to show mm-hmm. how much of a of an impact this has. But you know what? We're, we're going to do something a little special 
for this episode here. Normally, this is where I would stop and say, before we get into this film, it's time to trailerize it. But you know what? Before we get into this film, it's time for Brian to trailerize it. In a world where, well, actually, it's, it's not an entire world. It's not even an entire state. It's, it's really just Los Angeles. So, yeah, we'll go with city. In a city lives a college chock full of every 80s trope and stereotype known to man, including the five that Walt Disney Pictures... Oh, wait. You didn't realize this was a Disney movie either. Well, it is. Including the five that Walt Disney Pictures decided to focus on. The good guys, known as the Yellow Team, because yellow apparently indicates sportsmanship and fair play. The bad guys, known as the Blue Team, because the word bad starts with a B and so does blue... I honestly don't know why does blue signify the bad guys here. They could have gone with black or something. Black starts with a letter B. I digress. The jocks, known as the green team. The unpopular sorority team, known as the red team. And the debate team slash nerds, known as the white team. Because nerds won't become cool in film until 1984 when they finally get their revenge. These five teams go head to head to head to head to to head, yeah, in an attempt to win the Great All-Nighter, a dust-to-dawn competition created by Leon, a graduate student with an apparently endless supply of funds and enough wherewithal to convince 25 college students to break multiple laws all for the sake of winning a trophy. Starring Michael Fox in a role so bad he actually added a J to his name moving forward to try and distance himself from it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you sure that's why he added the J? Well, no, but I mean, the movie did lose Disney $4.5 million in 1980, so... Well, people have gone into witness location for less. Proceed. Also starring Pee Wee Herman in a cameo that immediately makes you wonder why he wasn't leading the white team instead of Eddie Deason and Stephen First because it must have helped the PR team market the movie to a college audience by saying, hey, Flounder from Animal House is in it. Midnight Madness, a wacky college comedy that promises to be the most fun you'll ever have in the dark. You're, you're kidding, right? That that's the best tagline you could come up with this? No, actually, that's the best tagline they could come up with for this movie. Ah, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know what? I, I don't have to do the trailer rise all the time, Brian. Thank you so much for that. That was a ton of fun. All right, let's get into who is in this film. This film stars David Naughton, Deborah Klinger, Stephen First, Joel Kenny, David Damas, and I again I apologize if I've mispronounced any of these names. Michael J. Fox in his feature film debut, and Dirk Blocker also his cinematic debut, and a lot of other people you probably don't recognize because I didn't either. However, there is an almost starring in this film. In the role of Mrs. Grimhouse, the landlady who keeps on giving Leon the gears for making too much noise. In the film, it's played by Irene Tedrow. But it almost wasn't. It was almost played by Joan Blondell, who played Vi in Greece, uh, the old woman who worked at the at the same diner as Frenchie, but apparently there was a falling out on set and she was replaced. 
The film is written and directed by Michael Nankin and David Wechter. Um, this film, you mentioned the fact that this film has a bit of a cult following. So I did a little bit of research here. If you go to midnightmadnessevents.com, as recently as 2021, so obviously, you know, COVID kind of slowed things down a little bit, but as recently as 2021, these people were putting on Midnight Madness type events in the New York and New Jersey area and in and around like that area. So I don't know if they're still doing it or not, but if they are or they're thinking about it, do it. It looks like a ton of fun. And apparently at Disney theme parks, they run like a charity event with some of the staff where they do quote unquote minis moonlit madness. Uh, and they use that as a way to raise, you know, raise funds for local charity, which I think is kind of fun as well. Of course. Yeah. But why not call it just midnight? I, I don't understand why. I mean, I do understand why. Disney tried to distance himself from this film, but I also don't understand why, because even though a lot of people will hail this movie as a dud, there's a lot of people in my 40-something age range that truly love this film because this was one of our childhood, quote-unquote, older comedies. It was as a... 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year old, this was considered a edgy comedy for a kid. It was PG. It wasn't a typical Disney G movie. This was actually Disney's second ever PG movie. With the first being... It was The Black Hole. And I remember when The Black Hole came out, like it was... You, you go in... And you know it's a Disney film. And it's in, it's in space. It's science fiction. I'm like, okay, cool. That film was dark. Like, really? Very dark. Yeah. I mean, I even remember, like, after seeing the, the, the movie in the theater, I had, and you're going to laugh at this, I had the storybook record. So it was one of those books where you read along and, you know, when, the, when you hear the little chime, you turn the page. I had that and I listened to that constantly. It was a good movie. But it it definitely was a move away from what they were doing at the time. And keep in mind, this is this is like the early '80s, right? Everything is so family oriented, and you're right. It's it's not Porky's. <laughs> Let's be honest. It's not Porky's. No, no, not even close. Exactly. It's not Animal House. You know, it's not the raunchy college movie that was starting to become big. What it was, was a fun caper aimed at college-aged kids, but yet it was still fine enough for, you know, if your little brother got, if you had to drag your little brother along to the theater, okay, it's not that bad for them. But you're right, though, this film did lose money. According to Wikipedia, this film had a budget of $4.5 million with a with a box office take of $2.9 million. But the thing is, the reason why we're here, and not just because, you know, you're a good guy and you mentioned the film, is the <laughs> is the critic score. This film over on Rotten Tomatoes has an audience score of 70%. And that, you know what, that fits along with the, the idea of a cult favorite. There is no official 
tomatometer on this one. However, there are three reviews on there, including one from Roger Ebert. So I took a look at the scores. There were two, two out of fives, and a one out of four. So if you take a look at those, the aggregate score, which would basically create a, a critic score, would be 35%, which means the film does qualify. But I ask you, right? Obviously, people who love this film are going to love this film. A lot of people aren't going to know this film because it wasn't that big a movie. But the 35%, should critics even be weighing in on this? Because it feels like the kind of movie that critics should just take a pass on because it's not geared towards them. Well, the fact that you said that Roger Ebert, it was certainly not meant for Roger Ebert. This was not high-quality filmmaking that was supposed to be an art form. This movie is played for laughs. This movie is played for 1980s laughs, which in the 1980s, one of the biggest comedic elements that I feel like is a staple throughout a lot of 80s comedies is the, I don't even want to say exploitation, but over-focus on stereotypes. There was always the good-looking, blonde-haired bad guy. Pretty much every single movie that uh, William Zabka was in in the 80s, he always played the same bad guy, whether it was just one of the guys back to school, even though Karate Kid wasn't a comedy. You, You get what I'm saying. There was always that stereotype, and what Midnight Madness did is it took five different stereotypes, and just the entire movie is played on laughs based on those stereotypes. This is not a movie that I could see being made in 2023, because I truly feel that even the jokes as harmless and whatever you want to call them as they are, would probably offend a modern audience now i i do I, i'm gonna disagree with you on this one here i okay. think i think the plot of the movie itself could easily be redone today because hmm. really the plot of the film is just no argument there yeah five teams going out on a big all-night scavenger hunt there's nothing wrong with the basic plot of the film <clears throat> will some of the gags get changed Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, the idea of using this big giant telescope at the observatory to peep on someone changing. A, how did that kid know exactly when she was going to be changing? B, (laughs) uh, exactly how tall of a house was she living in? Because that that, that, that telescope was pointing up. Pointing up. (laughs) You know, also, for the record, I did mention that this film is 43 years old. So if you haven't watched it by now, screw you. We're going to ruin it anyways. But that being said, let's get into the breakdown of why this film is actually really quite good. And rather than do this by individual actor like we normally do, we're going to break this down to the five teams because each one, as Brian mentioned, does have their own personality, whether it be a cliche or not. And we're going to start with Team Yellow. This is this is the hero's team, if you will. Uh, in Team Yellow was David Naughton, who played the role of Adam, Deborah Klinger, who played Laura, Joel Kinney, who played Flinch, who was kind of dragged along to save himself, uh, David Damas as Marvin, and Michael 
no J at the beginning, J at the end, Fox has Adam's brother, Scott. So in taking a look at Team Yellow, how was how were they as a unit for you? They were the, obviously, if you even listen to the soundtrack, every time they appeared in the movie, the music changed to fit their team. Same thing with the blue team. The score for this movie is actually really fun, almost Hanna-Barbera-esque, where some of the time the music really is played for uh, comedic effect. And we could talk about that probably more with the blue team. But for the yellow team, anytime that there was a scene between Adam and Laura, the music always turned to this dramatic, sappy love music. And it was always really, really on the nose. And it's... it plays to comedic effect. I enjoy that. The yellow team is meant to be the good guys. They don't cheat. They don't cut any corners. They do everything on the straight and narrow. The colors, I was joking about it as we trailerized it, but honestly, they could have used any color with any team. It really didn't matter. But your heroes in this movie are truly defined by the sweaters they're wearing. That, that, and that's literally, they're literally wearing their team sweaters, as which are handed out prior to this event starting. And every time you see two different team sweaters interacting, there's always some sort of clash. And that's kind of part of this. But the yellow team never instigated anything. They were always kind of the, I don't want to say goody goodies, but it's, it is played for comedic effect. Like at one point where they hop into an old folks car when they're trying to get somewhere quicker and the two old people are arguing and they're sitting in the back seat just as the two old geezers are kind of going back and forth arguing with each other. Uh, it is just one of those teams that every time they're on, you know, you're kind of seeing the heroes of the movie. There's pretty much no shock that they're going to win in the end. It just feels like that movie. And I won't spoil the ending for those who haven't seen it. I think when it comes to Team Yellow, you have to take a look. I mean, first of all, I'm just going to put this out there right now. David Damas, his character of Marvin, is literally should just be described as dude with car. That's basically his entire <laughs> role in this thing. Um, Joel Kenny, who plays Fletch, he's the, I assume he's late high school, getting ready to go into college, and he's being, you know, counseled by David Naughton to kind of help boost his confidence and all that kind of stuff. Like he's, you know, he's the guy who I think of everyone in that team has the full character arc. He starts out really shy and unsure of himself. By the end of it, he's, you know, he's flashing some chest hair, whatever the chest hair there is there. <laughs> you know, get them in the car with the ladies and, you know, like really comes into his own. Deborah Klinger is Laura, like just a sweetheart in this absolute, in this film. Like her character, she is very much the group conscious of everything. I got issue with Adam. I have issue with David Naughton in this here. I get that he's supposed to be like, you know, the good guy, leader of everything, the, the guy you're supposed to root for. But I don't root for him. Like, yes, Michael J. Fox is his studio. Well, he forgot Scott's birthday. Right. Which, for the record, okay, as I'm watching Michael J. Fox in this, right, forget family ties, okay? Forget everything you know about, about Michael J. Fox. If you're looking for where this role led to, you have to go back to the first season of Night Court because Michael J. Fox is in one of those episodes playing a snooty, bratty kid 
who doesn't listen to anybody. It's almost like if this character continued on after Midnight Madness, he ended up at Night Court, which kind of makes sense the way he plays Scott. But yeah, very much so. But is it me or was it hard at times to root for Adam? In, because I'm like, why Why is Laura even like this guy? Like, go for Flynn. She's the one who's, who's actually getting confidence. Yeah, Adam was kind of the voice of reason. But in a way, sometimes he talked down to other people, not intentionally. I just think that's just the way David Naughton portrayed him. And the music tries to humble him, if that makes sense the soundtrack underneath him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Faust, another guest on your show, and I were going back and forth about this movie. And the one dig we had was when Michael J. Fox actually says the whole line, he didn't even remember it was my birthday. It just came across. That was the one part of the acting where you're like, man, does Michael J. Fox grow as an actor between this movie and Back to the Future? He really came into his own. This was his first film role. So you could tell there's a little bit of, he's a little green in this. And I don't mean the green team. I mean, he's a little green as an actor and he's kind of getting his legs about him. So it's definitely interesting to see that. The dynamic between him and, and between Scott and Adam was awkward, which might work for a brother's relationship. But Adam certainly doesn't, portray the hero as a normal hero would. He definitely has his own flaws, but they're not really ever mapped out. They're not, they, they don't really explore those things because look, you're looking at four, five different teams of five different people for the most part. You don't have enough time to invest in character growth in, in a movie such as this. It's all played up for jokes. And I think that's where, his character might suffer a little bit mm-hmm. because his character doesn't really land in a lot of jokes. He's kind of the serious side of the movie, which there really shouldn't be, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think on screen, David Naughton and, and Deborah Klinger worked well enough. You know, I, I like the fact that he wasn't, <clears throat> despite the fact that he's telling flinch to be confident and you know that's all that's all a girl needs is confidence and yet all of a sudden he can't be confident with laura even though she clearly likes him right like this movie you know from the soundtrack to interactions like that subtle like a sledgehammer but it's (laughs) (laughs) but there are times when i'm sitting there going laura you know in a real world laura will probably not stick around long enough for Adam to get his ish together. And then I'm, I'm, I'm just putting no. that out there. Uh, let's move on to Team Blue, which includes Stephen First as Harold, Patricia Alice Albrecht as Lucille. And by the way, if her name sounds familiar, more to the point if her voice sounds familiar, then clearly I know that you used to watch the Gem and the Holograms cartoon because she was the voice of Pizzazz, the lead singer of The Misfits. Andy Tennant (laughs) was Melio, Brian Frischman as Barf, and Sal Lopez as Blade. I'm going to say this right now. Blade did not need to be there. He had zero purpose in this role. I, I find it funny that the teams with five people usually had one that didn't need to be there. And the teams with four seemed perfectly laid out. But how was Team Blue for you? Team Blue is the funniest part of the movie for me. Uh, they are the 
bad guys, quote unquote, but they're terrible at it. They want to be evil. They want to be diabolical, which is what Stephen First is trying for. They're trying to use a computer to cheat their way through everything, and they almost succeed at it, but they're just goofy and stupid, and that's where a lot of the humor is played. When they have to figure out the clues because the computer breaks and you have the whole, well, there's one of a chair, that's a chair, and there's one of an E, that's an E, and there's a pin, that's a point, so cherry point, cherry point, what about the ball? They're just dumb, and then obviously when Barf is unscrambling the letters, it's one of the most memorable funny lines of the movie, fag beefy, it's a nonsense word that he thinks is the next clue, hey Emilio, fag beefy <laughs> and, and you know, it's just Goofy and stupid, and the music that's playing behind them. It's very comical. It's very cartoon-esque. And that's kind of the part of the movie that I enjoy the most. When they're playing mini-golf, and they try to cheat, and they get the little note that says you got to start from the beginning and they, they have to go back and they're following all the kids. To me, that was hysterical. And at one point, like the, the subtle one-liners in this movie are what really land for me. They're playing through the game and at one point, Barf just goes, hey, you're 200 par. If you keep this up, you win a free game. It's stupid. And they're dumb and they're trying to cheat their way through this whole evening and it's failing at every point possible. And this is where most of the comedy comes from in this movie to me. This is probably my favorite team to laugh at. Oh, that absolutely. Makes sense. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, you talk about cliches and pretty much everyone on this team feels like a cliche. You've got Stephen first as the overweight daddy's boy. You can't get anything right. But, you know, but the father is so disappointed in his, in his inability or basically, um, lack of ambition to do anything meanwhile you know you've got you know adam who does everything right uh, this film needs backstory first first of all because you're dropped into a whole lot and you're like who the hell are these people uh and why are they so pissed off at each other that they're actually in this competition it it does at times feel like it's a long like a, like a movie length version of a TV series that was on because it takes a lot of, you know, it takes a lot for granted that you're going to know who these characters are without ever meeting who these characters are or without ever being introduced mm -hmm. to them. And with Lucille as, you know, the whiny girlfriend who's on Stephen first about, you know, being on his diet. It's like, there's so much. And, and barf, Barf is just a walking you know, cliche unto himself. There's something about the blue team. They are literally, Melio is the best friend for Harold who just wants to see him kind of get, get in trouble all the time. And like the part where Harold's hungry and he's like, Emilio, are there any cookies left? And instead of just, kind of shaking his head no he screams out no Harold there aren't any cookies left kind of waking up <laughs> Lucille stuff like that is hysterical based on what you were saying before though this movie is relying on 
our understanding of each team's stereotypes as the backstory. That's why these five teams are willing to compete. Simply because they don't like each other because stereotype. That is kind of the reasoning that the movie wants us to suspend disbelief and realize that all these people have a history, but we don't have enough time to get into it. So stereotypes are the reason they're going to want to compete. If you were taking a cinema writing class, you know, how to write a screenplay, I I could see this film being held up as, you know, these are the typical character tropes that you're going to see a lot of. See them, recognize them, don't do them. Um, I will say that with Melio, I'm glad you brought him up. What is his deal? Because you say he's the best friend of Harold. Well, that's that's fine. He comes off to me as the friend of Harold, but he's only friends with Harold in that he's trying to sabotage Harold's relationship with Lucille and waiting to to you know for her to dump him because he can't do a damn thing and eventually go because there's the point where he's looking for the snacks all that he's like straight up snuggling up with Lucille in the back of the van he's constantly constantly like cock blocking him all the way through <laughs> right I I think there's more to Emilio as far as like the intended backstory that doesn't actually get flushed out Unfortunately, there's probably a three and a half hour director's cut of this movie lying somewhere that nobody will ever see. And I'm sure all of that is is answered in, in that version. <laughs> I wonder if there's a novelization of this somewhere out there. Like, you know, the, the typical like, you know, now a major motion picture kind of thing. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> surprise me at all, which I could see being a fun novel at the time. But you know, it, it is a fun movie. And yes, Team Blue is definitely you keep mentioning the soundtrack. It reminds me not so much of cartoons, but Police Academy nailed that to a T. Any time like you you had the, the the commandant come in and whatnot, or anytime you had the the chief come in, you had that, you know, typical bad guy type music. There's a I think there's a lot of musical cues that maybe influence the police academy movies. Oh, definitely. This that that was one thing that this movie nailed is the soundtrack. Again, it's kind of like this movie that Hanna-Barbera put out in the early 80s called Chomps, C-H-O-M-P-S, about a robotic dog that when you were uh, Conrad Bain from Different Strokes was in this movie and uh, Valerie Bertinelli in one of her early roles. And it was done about a robotic dog that solves crimes by the guy just yelling out code words and the dog just hears the code and becomes an attack dog when normally he's just a robotic dog. The music, every time the dog went into action mode, played the movie's theme song. So, like, you hear that theme song about a hundred times during the movie, but it's done for almost a comedic Hanna-Barbera-esque impact. The way it was done in the seven-minute short cartoons, they were trying to stretch out to a movie length. And I think that was what they were going for here, trying to use the... Because if you strip the music from this movie and you just base it on the dialogue, it's not as funny. The music lends itself to the comedy as much as the comedy lends itself to the comedy. 
I, as you were saying that, I was actually taking a look up uh, who the composer was. It was Julius Wechter, so the father of the director-writer David Wechter. Uh, this is you know one of only three films that he actually did compositions for. One was a short called Junior High School. The other one was Murphy's Laws of Golf. But I had I was curious about this. So under on IMDb under music department. Uh, he is credited for doing songs for a short that is, quote unquote, a Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass double feature. So <laughs> I, I I am curious if Police Academy did take nods from this. And it also surprised me more that he hasn't done more work because it is it is a good soundtrack. I will absolutely give it that. Movie- can we all just, while we're on the while we're on the soundtrack, Jason, can we just talk about the fact that more movies need a theme song that take the title of the movie and sing it to you. <laughs> Cannonball Run did it, and you know the Cannonball song at the beginning of Cannonball Run. Cannonball, Cannonball. Can- and in this one, you got, It's Midnight Madness, gonna get to you. And you know what? Why don't they do that? Like, it's the Fast and the Furious. Yeah, we're back for 10 or something. You know, whatever the movie is. It's Nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy's gonna get to you. Like, you could use it for any movie. This song was perfect. And it tells you the entire movie in the opening song. You know what you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <I had> to- <laughs> oh, that's okay. It, it, it does. It feels, though, like, and you, you, you mentioned those kind of things. That's basically like 80s and 90s sitcom, like, absolutely, right? Where you, where you were able to have, you know, the title or the title song of a sitcom enter the charts. Like you had, yeah. you had, you know, where everyone knows your name from Cheers, you know, you had, you know, the, the theme song from Family Ties, you had, you know, um, Greatest American Hero. I was just about to mention that was the exact reference I was going to make. <laughs> like you had these songs that were so iconic and in some cases they were more iconic than the, than the movies that they were a part of. For the record, by the way, the song is written, uh, performed by Donna Fine. It was actually written by David Wechter and Julius Wechter. So it was written by the director and the composer, or the writer and the composer. Uh, Donna Fine, however, did put out an album apparently in 2009 but she has done a lot of backup uh, vocal work as well hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. But moving on, we need to talk about Team Green here. Brad Wilkin as, <laughs> as Levitus, Dirk Blocker, and if the name sounds familiar, that's because he's Hitchcock on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, as Blaylock, Kurt Ayers as Armpit, Trevor Henley as Kudzo, and Kenny Long as Gerber. Um... I'm not going to lie. I recognize that Levitis is supposed to be like, I don't know whether he's the quarterback or if he's the, the, the captain of the O-line of the football team. Dirk Blocker is the one that makes this team. Like, by all means, if you're going to draw a comparison to Revenge of the Nerds, he's Ogre in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. This team, to me, they're the football players, but they're the football players played to comedic effect. I played football for eight years and never once did the other lineman and I get together and chant our meat machine outside of the playing field. Like the fact that they kept doing that all the time. M-E-A-T, M-A-C-H-I-N-E, meat machine, meat ma-. Like they just did it at all the most random times. And the one thing I will say is they, it seems to me that Gerber, Kudzo, Blalak, and Levitus might be their last names because a lot of football players, and I'm certainly one of them, are known by their last names on the football field. Armpit, I'm guessing that's his nickname. Maybe, unless unless he has a very unfortunate family lineage. I'm just trying to picture if that would be pronounced a different way. It's like, no, no, it's it's Armpite. No. P. <laughs> also, I'm just going to put this out there. No one in the history of ever would ever take a green convertible Volkswagen or a Volkswagen Beetle because it looks like a Volkswagen Beetle and call that the meat machine. I'm sorry, (laughs) but no. I also love, too, the fact that, you know, aside from the fact that they're all wearing shirts, if you hadn't already figured this out, that they're on the same team, did you notice that every single vehicle they drove was also color-coordinated with the shirt that they were wearing? Oh God, yeah. That's again. That's part of the childish nature of the movie. That's kind of where the Disney esque part of it comes in. It's very colorful. Where the yellow team had the Jeep, the green team had the Volkswagen, the blue team had the big souped up van, the red team were in a pickup truck, and then the white team used scooters, which I thought was just perfect. <laughs> oh yeah, and let's be honest that 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 computer in the blue van clearly made its way over to Cannonball Run 2. Oh, knew. God, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was straight up Jackie Chan's car right there. Um, Team Red. This one's fun. So you got uh, Maggie Roswell, who played Donna. She was kind of like the leader of the sorority for Team Red. And if her voice sounds familiar, that's because she's Helen Lovejoy on The Simpsons. You also had Robin Petty, who played Burl, and the twins, Betsy Lynn and Carolyn... Carol Gwynn Thompson as Peggy and Lulu. So I'm just going to 
going to ask you an honest question here, Brian, okay? Mm-hmm. Anytime the twins came on, did you run, did you like reach for the mute button? It's one of the parts of the comedy that I never really thought was that funny. They really kind of played it a little too much. The fat jokes to me did not land in this movie. Even when they tried to play it over effect when they are in the carnival and the way yourself swing is broken and you could tell oh, that's where they just went. <laughs> like I, it was kind of the, the one team where as even as a kid, I was like, uh, oh, this scene, it's like, let me go get a snack or, you know, like they were the least dynamic, least memorable team of the group. Again, they were in a sorority. So even as an adult, when I was in college and my buddies and I would put this on, we had a hard time believing the oxymoron of unpopular sorority. No matter what sorority you were in, there was always a click within that sorority. I never was in a fraternity, but I know people who were, and I know people that were in sororities, and there was definitely a bond there that I don't feel this movie nailed the stereotype in any way because they tried to make them, a, a dare I use the word loser, but a, a unpopular sorority. The two just don't work for me but they needed to have that dynamic with the white team in order to have that arc make sense towards the end of the movie Mm -hmm. i just it it didn't land for me yeah and the fact that you had both team red and team white be abrasive with each other but yet for some reason they were both they both saw a common enemy in team green um but the other thing too you know, aside from the fact that Peggy and Lulu, anytime they were on the screen, like literally their entire dialogue was, (laughs) but, (laughs) but Donna to me, wasn't the most fascinating character of team red. It was Burl. Like the fact that like anything that would go wrong, she would come in, kick some ass and get it taken care of. I wanted more of her. I thought she was a more fascinating character than anyone else in team red. I completely agree. For some reason, they were going for the dynamic of Donna and Wesley from the white team having something which, okay, it works. I never understood, though, why the football players were going after a sorority in a negative way and messing with them because the football team usually was part of a fraternity and the fraternities and sororities usually got together again I feel like even at the Revenge of the Nerds four years later even the Lambdas had a sorority that they connected with the Omega Moos I don't understand how this red team was just this completely isolated sorority that had no actual connection and look maybe that's I was never again part of a fraternity or sorority so I don't know the dynamics at play there, maybe they did nail it. And and somebody who was in a fraternity or sorority can chime in on that one, but I unfortunately was not. So that part, again, I feel like the red team was the least strong, I will say. Don't get me wrong, there were some fantastic scenes with them in the movie that I truly enjoy, but to me, this was the weak part of the five. It's, it's funny you say that they're the weakest 
part of the teams. Because when you take a look at Team White, you've got one of four people with a character name. That's Eddie Deason. Uh, he played Wesley. He was, you know, basically the quintessential nerd. You know, for like seemingly every 70s and 80s film, right? He was in Grease and Grease 2. He was in War Games. He played Eddie in Punky Brewster. Surprisingly, not in Revenge of the Nerds. So there's a missed opportunity there. But you had the other three actors, Marvin Katzoff, Christopher Sands, and uh, Michael Gatomer. Again, I apologize if I mess up names. They were literally debate team guy number one, debate team guy number two, and debate team guy number three. <laughs> that tells you all you need to know, even though they did have lines. So they did better than Blade. Um, but, I mean, let's be honest. We don't even need to talk about the other three. How is Eddie Deason in this for you? To me, the white team actually has some really funny scenes in it. The whole opening part where they're trying to figure out the first clue and they're kind of shuffling their bikes around. SS Itari is mixed up and blind. Like the way they're figuring it out. They don't need names. Their characters, I think, in my opinion, are supposed to be Wesley, 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 and Wesley. And I think that's why these three characters, at least this is what I'm taking away from it, these three characters don't need names because they're literally supposed to be carbon copies of Wesley. And they don't even deserve names because that is what they are, if that makes any sense. They all very much kind of look the same. And it feels like Eddie Deason and his minions, so to speak. And I think that's the dynamic. And the geek minion dynamic, to me, is pretty funny. It, it works really well. Until you get to the part of the movie where Pee Wee Herman shows up and I immediately, even as a kid, thought, why isn't this guy? This was before I knew what Pee Wee Herman, who Pee Wee Herman was. This was before Pee Wee's Big Adventure came out or uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. I didn't know Pee Wee Herman in 1980 as a kid. He was on late night TV doing the Pee Wee Herman show, but my parents didn't let me watch that yet. This was different. So to me, I always thought Pee Wee Herman belonged on the white team somewhere. And Eddie Deason kind of plays that same type of character. And then the other three, debaters one, two, and three, are kind of supposed to be carbon copies. Oh, I mean, the funny thing, too, is that I don't even think Paul Rubens himself knew who Pee Wee Herman was at that time, because if I remember correctly in my research, he was still kind of workshopping the Pee Wee Herman character. And then he was you know, found and kind of put into this film for this role. So it's one of those things where it's like you're seeing Pee Wee Herman in the embryonic stage of that character's of you know creation so it's a fascinating time capsule of you know paul rubin's career at that point but you're right like eddie Deason, um you mentioned the fact that the sororities would never be like that it almost feels because this is college level that team green red and white they feel like they would be you know members of sororities or 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 frats and it almost feels like it should be a frat versus frat thing not this random oh i've selected these five people and they're going to pick the people that i know they're going to pick because leon knows all it's it feels like it should have been a frat slash sorority versus frat slash sorority kind of event i i have a feeling if they were to remake this it would be one of those things where you would take the 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 frat society setting of a movie like PCU or Revenge of the Nerds and put it into this kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, but you mentioned Hanna-Barbera, so I'm going to go there, Laugh Olympics type of event that you that everyone has to compete against each other. Also, Laugh Olympics, love that cartoon. 
Oh, heck yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mentioned Leon as played by Alan Solomon. For the record, this is his first film as an actor, by the way. And I find it funny that later on in his career, he actually went on to be a producer on game shows, including The Big Spin, Powerball, The Game Show, and Dirty Rotten Cheater. So the the, the spirit of Leon lives on here. But <laughs> but here's the thing. And this, this is nothing against Alan Solomon. Okay? This is absolutely nothing against Alan Solomon. This is about Leon. Because I have questions about Leon here. Where the f*** does Leon get his money from? How? <laughs> That's the thing. Right? Oh my God, the whole movie. <laughs> like, how does Leon know everything? What connections does he have to be able to run the entire city of Los Angeles? Exactly how does Leon have the mojo to get girls like Candy and Sunshine to be beside him the entire time? Clearly in some weird some weird harem type relationship. For the record, <laughs> the role of Candy is played by Deborah Richter, who lit, later went on to start in the movie cyborg uh, I, I have to ask i if they ever make a sequel to this film it's got to be the legend of leon because leon is the most fascinating character and the as, as soon as he turns around uh leon like clearly everyone knows who leon is who the f- is leon and i'm fascinated by this character but how is leon for you Leon is like a god in this movie because he literally says to Candy and Sunshine, by the end of the week, they'll be dying to play. Like, he just knew. And I think about some scenes when you watch this movie in retrospect, how he was able to afford to cover up all of those cases of beer at the Pabst Blue Ribbon Brewery to have his face and likeness and clue written on it, okay? That's expensive. How he was able to get clearance at an airport to have people dressed up as Harry Christians walking around handing out pamphlets with his likeness on it. Can you imagine all the arrests that would happen if this movie was shot now? I mean, oh. look, certain certain places where like at the diner, just having the, the, the one waitress wear the hug me necklace that's not an expensive task but to paint the bottom of a door in a mini golf game with a clue to be able to take over the paps blue ribbon brewery even the piano bar or the piano store that they went into and trashed or almost trashed it because uh at one point Stephen first was about to smack melio with a uh piano stool to me that's again another one of the funniest scenes in the movie just playing heart and soul inside the piano bar or inside the piano store and then having the green team figure out the next clue and having armpit or having blaylock scream it out the next the next clue must be at the paps ribbon brewery thanks blaylock like everybody was like oh great thanks those scenes again used music for comedy and I'm telling you, you take the soundtrack away from this movie, it's not as funny. The soundtrack in this movie is absolutely brilliant. And I know being a music podcaster, it sounds like I'm just kind of sticking to the music points, but I'm not a huge movie guy, but this is one where the soundtrack really, for a comedy, makes the movie. And I and I know we've been kind of hitting on that a lot this hour, but it's true. Oh, absolutely. And there's one of the challenges of recreating a movie like this. You know, I have been... You know, occasionally tweeting the words, Dear Hollywood, 
write new stories. Uh, and I, I stand by that. But I do appreciate taking lesser known movies or at least movies that were in kind of a genre of the time. Because let's be honest, Midnight Madness does feel like a movie in its own genre, along with movies like Cannonball Run, Cannonball Run 2 eventually with rat race you know you have I was just going to say rat uh, rat race to me is the closest thing to a modern midnight madness as you're going to get and midnight madness is not the first of its type all of these movies push back to it's a mad 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 world oh yeah, absolutely and that was just a excuse for a bunch of skits involving quote unquote different teams because different teams got you your different comedians put together for the skits. And I feel like that's what they were going for with this movie, but with all unknowns, except for Stephen first at the time who was kind of coming off of animal house. Mm-hmm. But if you think about this movie, imagine these teams, if they were all recast with famous people at the time and famous comedians at the time, does this movie become a much bigger hit for Disney? I don't know. Okay, they would probably, you know, cheap out and do the movie remake and, you know, try to put some at least well-known actors kind of in. You know, obviously there's enough room for some actors to get their their big break in a movie like this. I wouldn't be surprised if they take, if Disney were to do it again, they would probably take some actors that were from some of like the Disney Channel shows and put them in, you know, give them that film kind of chance to to grow you know similar to you know ariana grande actually getting a a role in the movie and i can't remember uh i can't remember swindle that's what it was you know being mm-hmm. you know getting a chance to start a movie like that to be able to to grow and expand on their on their filmography but i could also see you know if you if disney's looking for an idea here you know this is where I'm trying to make my money here. I'm just going to like put ideas out on a podcast and wait for Disney to pay me for it, or at least for them to steal <laughs> the idea and then I sue them for it. So whichever one works, I'm going to go with that. But if they were to take you know, actors from some of their different shows and put them in a Midnight Madness reality type show around one of the Disney parks, you telling me that that reality show wouldn't absolutely slay Oh, heck yeah, it would. Also, oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Also, Disney, you're welcome. Pay up. Um, but <laughs> Can I get a cut of that being I'm a guest in this episode? <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll have a split. It's all good, right? So okay, make, good, the, good, good. make the check out to Brian Colburn and Jason Whistle and we'll, we'll be fine. Okay. Um, Irene Tedrow, we mentioned her earlier as Mrs. Grimhouse, the landlady who tries to be the foil to you know, to, to Leon the Great here. How was she for you? Honestly, I thought she was perfect in this movie because she was just angry and annoying enough to be comedic, if that makes sense. She was never menacing to the point where you were ever truly scared, but she had that kind of, you don't know what kind of stuff she'll pull. And I think the twist where she ends up getting arrested and not Leon is a funny gag in the movie because her incessant bantering pays off, just pays off the wrong way. And I think that was one of the great payoffs in the movie, actually. Oh, yeah. Like, she's the character you want to have the bad things happen to her. Like, you know, obviously not 
horrible things because it's still a PG film, but it's it's the perfect comeuppance for that kind of character. I completely agree with that. I I had to correct myself as I was doing my research because I had this whole big thing about, you know, Disney calling their shot well before they actually did, you know, before they bought Lucasfilm because there's a scene in this film where they go to the arcade where Pee Wee Herman is working and they have to play this game. And clearly they are shooting TIE fighters in this game. Like the, there's zero question about this. I'm like, oh, good. It's like the, the, the knockoff awesome Star Wars arcade game that we all played as kids because that was the coolest game. Mm-hmm. And it was called Starfire with the same font. I'm like, oh, yeah, they call their shots. No, 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 no. I was wrong. Starfire was a game that actually did exist. Yes, they borrowed heavily from Star Wars and from Battlestar Galactica. Here's the funny thing, though. And before we started recording, I told you that I was going to drop some knowledge here that was going to make you go down a rabbit hole. You can play this game online for free today. No. You go to to archive.org and the Internet Archive. And the makers of that game and Starfire 2 have taken their coding. And it's now Creative Commons code. And you can go to the Internet Archive or the Internet Arcade on archive.org and play this game in browser for free. And it looks exactly like it does in the game. Now, I don't know if Leon shows up at the end with some weird alien hat and tells you to go to oh, the Bonaventure Hotel. that's what I was Hotel. just going to ask. Yeah. yeah. That, <laughs> if that doesn't happen, they've missed their mark here. Well, clearly, I do not have Michael J. Fox gamer skills in order to be able to get to that point. Um, I, we mentioned that there were, you know, five you know, players per team for the most part here, you know, and that it kind of dropped you into the middle of this. And, you know, you have to take a lot on the fact that these are stereotypes and you know them because of the cliche that they are, not because of their backstory. To be dropped into a film like this, though, is it a little too much, like, who the hell are these people to follow? Or was is for someone who doesn't know and hasn't listened to this episode... You know, are, is it easy to jump into and get a grasp of of who is who and what's going on? I did at five years old the first time I saw this movie. So I'm guessing it's pretty obvious based on, again, the music that's played for each team to just kind of get who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. The only part where it gets a little gray is in between the like the red and white team there. But you know your your main players are the yellow and blue team. And the other three are the extra relief just to kind of flesh the story out. Yeah, it's a lot of characters. Yeah, it's a lot of actors to kind of keep track of. But at the end of the day, you really are just keeping track of five things. Yellow, blue, red, white, and green. And those are the things that you're treating five different characters as one, as yellow honestly, if you were to watch that movie for the first time and then say to somebody, okay, name every character on the blue team, they might get Harold and Melio because those names are screamed out a lot during the movie. Lucille's not a lot. Barf, obviously, in some of the dialogue. (laughs) Peggy and Lulu are only referred to as Peggy and Lulu because every time they do it, they do their little hee-hee that you talked about. Oh, God. (laughs) But you don't ever learn three of the debaters on the white team's name. 
And everybody's okay with that. Why? Because again, it's more just the white team. That's your character. And I think that's kind of the part of this movie that maybe they could have had one less player per team and it still would have been funny. But I think, I don't know, maybe they had favors they had to pay back to some actors. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get to our MVPs, Twitter has spoken on this one. Uh, The 80s movie podcast chimed in with, it's a horrible film, but I'll allow its existence since it helped its producer, the son-in-law of Walt Disney, push the company in new directions that would lead to the formation of Touchstone Pictures. And that's, that's a fascinating point. Not the It's a good film. You know, for what it is, it's definitely a good film. Is it groundbreaking? No. You know, is it, you know, perfectly acted? Like, no one's winning an Oscar off this one, but also no one's winning a Razzie off this one. For the record, I looked. Not a single Razzie nomination and not a single Stinker's Bad Movie Award nomination. It's it's right in the middle. It's right in the pocket. It's exactly what it means to be. But he's got a point in that this did help Disney make that jump into more for lack of a better term mature fair um and if you think about the 80s too there was a trend where things were starting to grow up a little bit it wasn't so you know saturday morning cookie cutter like you had darker cartoons movies like the secret of nim you had darker Mm -hmm. you know full-on animatronics and and puppetry with the dark crystal you had darker fantasy movies like legend uh you had almost a maturing and an understanding that not everything was going to be good at the end of every single episode of television midnight madness to me and this is just me proves that you can you can have a little bit of raunchy fun in a way that's still clean like, I watched this again last night before recording this, and, you know, my kids were rocking around. I'm like, you know what, they're, they're, they're of an age where if they walk in, even if they were younger, if they walked in, there's nothing wrong with this film. You know, yeah, sure, there's a bit of cleavage, but that's it. It's no nudity. There's no, there's no, no there's jokes that, that are going to go right over their head. The, the beer joke, why was Blaylock acting all funny. I mean, you might have to have that conversation. But don't, don't jump into the vat, you know. Yeah, exactly. And in you know, look, this is a comedy that's honestly I feel like aimed for a 13 to 15 year old, but if your 10-year-old little brother was in the room, that's okay too. He'll still find laughs in it. And like I said, I watched this on HBO as young as 5, 6, 7 years old and I laughed then. And mostly it was because of all just kind of the comedic mayhem that was happening. Kind of the way I loved both Cannonball Runs growing up. Did a lot of the jokes go over my head? Sure, in the first two Cannonball Runs. But then when I watched it again as an adult, it gave new jokes. You know, some of the jokes that went over my head as an adult didn't. I watched Midnight Madness with both of my children, who are 14 and 9, and... A lot of the jokes went over their heads, you know, like the cleavage part that you mentioned, and that's fine. But the jokes of just saying stupid words like fagabifi and cherry point, kind of the logic behind it, or shoving the marshmallows into the computer. It's just silly, harmless comedy, really. Yeah. It's it's testing the waters. 
in a safe way that if anyone ever said, you know, anything, you could sit there and say, well, it's PG, but it's not that bad PG. It's not PG-13, right? This isn't, you know, it's not raunchy. It's it, like, you know, we joked around, like, it's not Porky's, right? Obviously, Porky's is, you know, like classic R-rated hilarity movie. You don't see a lot of movies like this really that much anymore. We talked about Rat Race. Rat Race I, I, I recognize Rat Race is going to end up on this podcast eventually because it does qualify, but it's just one of those fun romp kind of movies and not everything has to be either, you know, rated G family oriented or completely the opposite, right? And end up being some kind of like Euro trip kind of thing. You can have middle of the road, safe for everyone, but still knowingly poke fun at and have those kind of jokes in there. It's a perfect middle ground that could be easily templated to today. I I completely agree. Midnight Madness could be done today. You know, change some of the jokes? Yeah, sure, fine. But the template is there. It could easily be done. And it's 43 years old. Let's be honest here, right? We don't have to wait another seven for the 50th anniversary. (laughs) But, you know, you could easily... I would rather see a Midnight Madness remake than another animated film turn into a live action CGI mishmash like Disney's Pinocchio. I would rather see something like, give me Condor Man (laughs) over, you know, the, the, you know, the remake or whatever of a Pinocchio, you know, like don't need it. Don't need it. This fine. Perfect. Do it. Make it modern. But that's just me. It is a fun film, but it's come time. So, Brian, who is your MVP of Midnight Madness? Oh, man. You know what? I am. I got to go with Barf from the blue team. So goofy. (laughs) So, so comedic. Brian, Brian Frischman did such a great job. Just the look of pure stupidity on his face, even when he's just in the background. He kind of has this Scooby-Doo look of duh on his face the whole time. And he kind of just holds it. <laughs> he's just in the back, always laughing. Always, It's just it's just funny as hell. He's like a, a human cartoon character in this movie. Always made me laugh. And the faggot beefy joke, as nonsensical as the word is, Every time I watch it, even to this day, Bugga Beefy, like I just laugh because he's so dumb. He thinks he's actually on to something. And to me, as a five year old and even as a 45 year old, it's funny. It's absolutely funny. I'm not going to lie. I, I flip flop between a few here. At first, I was going to go with Deborah Klinger, who played Laura on Team Yellow, because as the conscious, she was, she was sweet in this. She was fun. You know, thought about it. But then I'm like, okay, but really there's not much to her character she did the job well but there's not much to laura except for you know group conscious kind of thing i thought about alan solomon because apparently leon is the pinnacle of everything that we all aspire to be the legend of leon (laughs) that midnight madness to the legend of leon make it happen please (laughs) but i could not get over how much fun dirk blocker was in this like, and maybe I'm a little biased because I do love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I, lo- I love that show. Love him and, you know, and Scully in there. 
but he was so much fun in this. Like Ogre is one of the, the most memorable characters of, of, out of Revenge of the Nerds because of just how over the top he is, how insane he is. Blaylock is like that in this, right? Anytime Team Green shows up, I don't care about Levitis. I don't care about any of the others. I want to know what Blaylock's going to do because I know I'm going to laugh every time he does it. He had the best lines almost out of the entire film because of the situations he was in. You know, the fact that he was diving into the, uh, you know, into the, the, the beer vats before Bob and Doug McKenzie were able to do that. But it's, you know, kudos to Dirk Blocker for making Team Green better than they were, not just as a team, but li- really as a as a source of comedy for this one. Brian, thank you for hopping on the show and in, you know basically introducing me to Midnight Madness because I don't even know if I watched it or not. Maybe in a fever dream, I can't remember, but it was such a fun film. But before we go, please take the mic. Let us know where we can find my weekly mixtape. Sure. My Weekly Mixtape is a music podcast where I do what I did when I was also growing up, and that is each week I make a mixtape. Only instead of me just recording a bunch of songs onto a cassette like I did growing up, I bring a special guest on and we do something that me and my friends used to do growing up, which was create our own compilation mixtapes together in a collaborative effort. So what we'll do is we'll pick a song topic and then me and a guest will build a mixtape based on that topic, all real time, bouncing off each other's song picks to make a cohesive statement of a mixtape. And then I also do other episodes where I make a mixtape in advance, bring the artist on and ask them about those songs kind of laid out as a mixtape. So it's a fun, interactive music podcast that is available at myweeklymixtape.com or just by following at myweeklymixtape on any of the socials. And you can also search My Weekly Mixtape wherever you listen to this and other fine podcasts out there. It's I love talking music each week. It's kind of my moment of joy. It's my bowling night, if you will. And I've been lucky enough to have some amazing musicians and some great friends and fellow podcasters such as yourself, Jason, on. And I am just looking forward to continuing to have this musical conversation with people. And I'm uh, excited when some people tune in and listen. So myweeklymixtape.com. And the fact that My Weekly Mixtape, it hasn't been around long enough. So if you have already deep dived into, you know, the My Weekly Mixtape, you know, back catalog, where can we also find Playlist Wars? Sure. Playlist Wars is available at PlaylistWarsPodcast.com. And Gomez and I are currently on hiatus. He is doing the Sleevy G Show, which you can find at SleevyGPodcasts.com. And then I've got my weekly mixtape. And we're hoping that this summer we'll come back and record a bunch of Playlist Wars episodes that we could start rolling out, at least on a monthly basis. Unfortunately, during the school year, his kids are several years difference in age than my kids, and we are just, as parents, on completely different schedules. But during the summer, when school and sports aren't in session, our schedules align a little bit more, so we're hoping that the stars align enough for us to get some recordings in over the summer. That will be great, because as someone who's not only just been you know been a guest on the show, but have listened to a number of the episodes, both shows, and as well as Sleepy G as well, all three of those shows phenomenal lesson so by all means check all three of them out however we've come to the end of this show so 
Friends, you know the drill. If there's a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is just so bad that you, you think we can't find anything good to say about it, hit us up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast and we will watch it. We will dissect it and we will find the good things to say. For other episodes, you can go to Twitter. You can find us there. You can go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com and you can backtrack all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jay. Brian, thank you so much for this you guys are awesome for listening. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.